Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Our Bible reading is from John chapter 10, verse 30 to 39. At the end of this reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying, thanks be to God. Again, John chapter 10, verse 30 to 39. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents opened up, picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I have said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world. Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Ben. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see us. I actually thought that uh, the rain would be more of a challenge. Uh, but uh, it's, it's really nice to see everyone, at least here. And uh, welcome again to uh, the, those who are new or those who are coming for a second time. Um, we are going through the book of John. And in the book of John, we are trying to discover the founder of our faith, the one who um, our faith is grounded on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're trying to see who he is and to understand who he is better. Now, we are running through the whole book from beginning to end. We're skipping some parts, but largely we're taking about 19 sermons on that, and this is the eighth sermon. So we've called it the Believe and Live series because Jesus says, uh, John, who wrote this book, said that the, um, the reason he's written the works that are inside this book is so that we may know that Jesus is the Son of God, and in knowing that, we can have eternal life. So we want to know and believe Jesus is the Son of God, and if we do that, we'll have eternal life. Now, I don't know about you. Every relationship that we have, there are always what we can call rules or the terms of agreement. Take a husband and wife. Um, when you got married, uh, for those of us that are married here, Yes, you signed the document, but in the document you signed, you didn't put every single detail of what was expected of you. Now, we did make some vows and said things like, for richer and poorer, um, in sickness and health, till death do us part. And that has implications on how this relationship is going to be managed. Now, even when we've not, we don't have them written down, many of these rules are unsaid. It's a violation of these rules or these terms that lead to quarrels and unfortunately lead to breakups. Now, even in our world, our relationship with the created order, we, there are certain terms, 
Think of the law of gravity, right? We relate to this world in the law of gravity. If you don't believe it, you can go up to this building and jump down and see whether it's not true. So there are consequences when we violate these terms of agreement. What we believe we should do or we shouldn't do is dependent on how we understand or the terms that actually form our relationship. So the question is, if I do have a relationship with God, what are the terms under which this relationship is governed? Or where do I find those terms? Now, I don't know many people that would have a relationship with God, and you hear this thing like, that is often said. You have to understand how God speaks to you. And it's not, quite often someone will tell me, look, I, I respect how God speaks to you, but God speaks to me through my dreams. I remember there was a lady that were very good friends uh, back in the day, and honestly, I won't lie to you, she always, she called me every time, said, Femi, ah, I need to speak to you, I had this dream. The first time it happened, I thought, okay, I tried to interpret the dream for her. The next time, next day, she had this dream. Now, what started happening was not just that she was calling me every day for a dream, she would have a dream the night before, and then she would tell me that it was connected to another dream, which was connected to a dream she had when she was 12. I mean, this had no end to it, until I stopped picking our calls, obviously. But it could be through visions. It could be through impressions. You feel the Lord has laid something on you. How do we essentially mediate our relationship with God? Is it through a prophet or a prophetess? Now, if you look in this scripture, in verse uh, this 30 to 39, verse 30 defines or governs the whole section that we read. In verse 30, it says, I and the Father are one. Now, the Jewish opposition here found this blasphemous. Why did they find it blasphemous, as you see in verse 31? Because they wanted to stone him. Now, the reason they found it blasphemous is that they felt that Jesus was claiming to be God. You, a mere man, claim to be God. Now, Jesus eventually... His main argument, you see in verse 37 and verse 38, and his main argument is basically, I am doing the works of my father. Now, if I'm doing the works of my father, my father and I are united in this way, that should point you to a greater reality in which we are united. I am in the father and the father is in me. Or look at verse 28 and verse 29. If you look at verse 28, he says that towards the end, no one will snatch them out of my hand. That is, no one will snatch the people that my father has given me out of my hand. Verse 28. Verse 29, it says, My father, is great, my father who, is giving, who is giving them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. So whose hand is it? Jesus is saying, if you snatch them out of my hand, you are snatching them out of my father's hand. So he's saying there's a unity in action between me and God, my father, that should prove a greater unity, a more existential unity, or a unity based on their nature. Now, that's his main argument. But before the argument in 38-39, or sandwiched between 38-39 and this one that we see in 20, uh, 28 and 29, sorry, before his main argument, 36 to 37 to 38, sandwiched between uh, 28 and 29, is another kind of argument he Proposes. Now, this argument is not the slam dunk argument. This argument is not the proof, but it's an argument in which he's trying to just keep their mouth shut. What does he do? He says he goes to their law, that is the Bible, 
Oh, dear. He goes to the Bible, and in the Bible he's saying, well, it's written in your law that I have said you are God's. So he goes to the Bible. Now, quick one. This is in reference to Psalm 82. Now, in Psalm 82, Lord there says that he's referring to some people. And listen to what he says. He says, God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. That's verse 1. In verse 5 later, he says, the gods know nothing. Verse 6, he says, I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. Now, there's speculation as to who he was referring to here. Some people would say he's angels. Some people would say he's the judges of Israel. I think it's more likely that he's referring to the people of Israel because Jesus says, the ones to whom the word of God came. So he's talking to the people in Israel. When the word of the Lord came to them, Moses went, got the law, and gave to them at Sinai. So when in verse 7 of 82, he says, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. It's the judgment that came when they um, were worshiping a golden calf, and subsequently, many of them died. All of them that came out of Egypt, except two of them, died in the wilderness. So God, is, Jesus is saying, now he's not using this to, he's not trying to do an exegesis on Psalm 82. He's actually just trying to douse a very, very tense environment by going on their own turf. What's the problem? God in this Bible, in this same word, says that he referred to people as God. So why are you now, you know, why are you so hung up on the fact that I refer to myself as God's son? I mean, after all, he says, you are God's and you are all sons of the so even if I'm referring to myself as a son of God, why are you hung up about it? Check your scriptures. Especially if I'm not just a mere son. Especially if I am the uniquely sanctified son. The one whom the father has set apart as his very own and sent into the world. Why are you accusing me of blasphemy? Now what's important for us today and this is really where I want to focus on, is the scriptures. Jesus and the people that he was speaking to, the Jewish opposition, had a very high view of scriptures. In fact, it's written in verse 35. He said to them, the scriptures cannot be set aside, or if you look in the ESV, and I think the King James, the scriptures cannot be broken. So I want to ask us, in mediating our relationship with God, Jesus wants to know, where do the scriptures fit in? So I want us to look at three different things that we can get implicitly from this passage. So we'll look under these headings, Scripture's worldview, Scripture's authority, and Scripture's power. Scripture's worldview, Scripture's authority, and Scripture's power. Now some of us here, as you can look around, are wearing glasses. I was wearing glasses when I was younger, and it was... It was really because of headaches. But there'll be some of us here, and a lot of people that wear glasses, why do we wear them? We wear them because there's a certain way we are seeing the world, but it's not really the way the world is, right? Um, things look maybe closer or further than, away than they are. So what are the glasses? The glasses basically are aids. We get these lenses that help us correct. They aid how we then see the world. Glasses are aids that help us see the world as it's meant to be. Now, with our different experiences, our backgrounds, our religions, sociologists tell us 
that all of us have these lens through which we see the world. It's the means through which we can derive meaning in the world. How do you see the beginning of the world? How do you see the end of the world? It's going to influence how you think what is good and what is right, what is worth pursuing and what is worth rejecting. This is what you call a worldview. So think of Wikipedia. Wikipedia defines a worldview. You know, thank God for Wikipedia. Wikipedia defines a worldview as a particular philosophy and conception of the world. A particular philosophy, how you live your life based on a particular conception of the world. But let me quote a more uh, comprehensive view. This is a, a philosopher. His name is James Althwaite. He says, uh, a worldview is a framework, please listen closely, it's a framework or set of fundamental beliefs through which we view the world, our calling in it and our future in it. It is a channel for the ultimate beliefs which give direction and meaning to life. A framework of set, or set of fundamental beliefs through which we view the world, our calling in it and our future in it. It's a channel for the ultimate beliefs which give direction and meaning to life. Now let's test this. Let me quote two poets to, for you, right? The first one is a guy called Stephen Crane. He's a, he's a, a late American, well, 19th century uh, poet. And he says this. This is a poem. A man said to the universe, Sir, I exist. However, replied the universe, the fact has not created in me a sense of obligation. The man said to the universe, Sir, I exist. However, replied the universe, the fact that you exist, has not created in me a sense of obligation. That's Stephen Crane. Now hear this other poem from a very ancient writer. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings, that you care for them. In the first poem, the universe feels no sense of obligation to care for the human being. And the human being feels no sense of compulsion or allegiance to worship the universe. In the second poem, where you have a creator God, that God cares and mankind is amazed at this care and also leads him to worship. What is going on here? We are seeing two different poets both talented, but operating from a different worldview. One does not assume a personal creator being God. The other one assumes that. The other one, therefore, maybe the human beings came by accident, the universe that is above them feels no sense of obligation. But in this other one, there is a creator God who creates this mankind in his image. Now, I go through that to say that the scriptures that we have, what we call the Bible, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, is giving us a distinct worldview. When Jesus was arguing with this Jewish opposition, it was based on scripture. There was agreement between both of them that these scriptures provide a unique history or a unique history that, that, that shows the works of God. Now, if you accept that, you're going to view the world in an entirely different way. 
In fact, Jesus is saying, as you can see in verse 38, that I want you to know and understand certain truths. So, for instance, if you understand that Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus, he's saying you will see the world differently. The scripture presents to us certain truths or what you can call doctrine. And put them all together, you can call theology. Through which, if we understand them, we start to view the world differently. He wants us to know and understand the world different from those who don't accept those truths. In other words, this Christianity, and this isn't the only thing Christianity is passionate about, but it's passionate about this, is very, very involved in shaping our minds. Now, can I say this, that though it's fashionable now, there is no virtue in being an ignorant Christian. Have you ever come across someone that says, you know, well, you want to talk doctrine or whatever, and say, well, all these things, they're just confused. I, don't, I just want to know Jesus. Now, there's something good in being simple. There's nothing good in being simplistic. Because once you say, I just want to know Jesus, the next question I want to ask you is, which one? Because you see, once you say you want to know Jesus, or I just follow Jesus, or Jesus follows me, or Jesus speaks to me, you are already saying certain things about Jesus, whether you admit it or not. In other words, there is no neutral ground when it comes to doctrine. It's whether or not you are aware of the doctrines that you hold. Now, Christianity is passionate about developing our minds. In order to really understand the world that we live in, we are brought into this world of doctrine. So scriptures present to us a view of a God versus gods or no God. It presents to us a view of creation and not accidental evolution. It creates to us a view of human beings created in the image of God and makes them distinct from all the other creatures. It tells us about human beings. It tells us about God's nature, about Israel, incarnation, atonement, resurrection, ascension, faith, regeneration, kingdom of God, justice, afterlife, hell, heaven, new earth, and new heavens, and the earth. And you have to have an opinion on these things. Because whatever you think of these things, whether you know them or you don't know them or you think that they are not necessary, is going to shape your behavior. So how do you see the world? What glasses are you wearing? Is it the glasses of, I know religion is important because I need to secure myself in the afterlife, but the most important thing is family. Like a friend of mine told me, a good Christian, he said, Femi, you know what? We go around so many things. I think God is saying that the most important thing in life is family. Now, that kind of thinking is behind those who actually feel that on Sunday morning it's best to take their children to a soccer game because, you know, his, the scouts are going to be there than to bring them to church. All that kind of thinking is the one that would make you defend your family, even when you know it's wrong, as opposed to rebuking us sometimes because, you know, you have to be loyal to family. So I say again, the question is not really whether or not you have a worldview. Is it really consistent with the realities of the world we live in? Does it align with scripture, especially if you're a Christian here? 
Or are you being shaped by something more fundamental that is alien to the scriptures? So the first thing that we are knowing or understanding from here is that Jesus looks at the world with the lens of scripture. Now, developing a scriptural worldview is not enough. So it takes us to our second point, scripture's authority. Scripture's authority. Now, I was alluding to this, but it's common nowadays for us to revere holy books. The same way we basically, you know, someone says, ah, the Quran is a, it's a good historical document, Bible, you know. The amazing thing about it is that it's been preserved all these thousands of years. So we think, we say, look, they're very important. Very important. They shaped um, uh, um, societies, and they give us, you know, good laws, practical wisdom to live by. But they do not have binding authority over my life. So I, um, I think recently, a guy who, how many of us know the guy called Nick Cannon? Right? Yeah? All right. I hear Nick Cannon is really into a hodgepodge of a lot of... Um, Different religions, right? He's, he's, he's mixing um, Eastern religions, some aspect of nation of Islam, which isn't really Islam, but is, you know, uh, the black consciousness movement through Islam. So he's bringing that, and he's also saying, but he's still a Christian. In other words, he's a kind of Christian. Because if he's reading the Bible, he will know that the Bible demands a certain allegiance that you cannot give to other places. So he's not creating the truth religion. He's creating his own religion. Now, scriptures are not just concerned of in making us see differently. That's the world view. You see the world differently. It's concerned in making us do differently. It's not just acting on our minds. It wants to act on our will as well. It's not enough to know the doctrine. Is do you do? So Jesus Christ, Luke 6, uh, 46 says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? That's doctrine. Is he the Lord of the world? Fine. Doctrine. And do not do what I say. So he's saying, well, you hold this thing, you can explain this thing, but it actually makes no difference in your life. In other words, it has no authority. Now, I know some of us are uncomfortable because, again, it's fashionable to say, ah, I hate religion. It's very stuffy. It's stifling, you know, with all these rules and regulation. All I want is a relationship. Christianity is a lifestyle. In fact, I am not religious. I'm just spiritual. Now, I understand where that's coming from. There is a way that you can use laws or misuse laws in a way that the laws become stifling and the, 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 the laws remove the freedoms that we've been given. Now, it's not an argument against laws or commandments. It's an argument against the misuse of laws and commandments. Because really, there's no relationship that is valuable in our lives that doesn't have terms of agreement. So for instance, think of that uh, software that you just recently purchased, right? You know how it is. You download it, run. Then after, they bring up these um, terms and conditions. And what do you do next? You read all of it, don't you? No, you scroll down and you look for, I accept, right? I accept it. And later the thing doesn't work. And you're like, how come it didn't work? Well, it's in terms of agreement. I want my money back. Well, it's in terms of agreement. You can't get your money back. You have established a relationship based on terms and agreement. Now, that's not so much a personal relationship. 
But think about even just again our spouses. There are certain terms and conditions that are there. If you try to have a relationship where you say no terms and conditions, like friends without benefits, I don't know if you've heard of that depraved kind of thing, but oh friends, oh friends with benefits. Yes, yes, yes. Shall glad you knew that. Anyway, <laughs> having I told you what, we do have relationships where there are no terms and agreements. You know what that kind of relationship is? It's a relationship that has no value whatsoever. If you really love someone, if you really love someone, you'll be bound by certain terms and agreements. Some of us became fathers and mothers, or let's say the mothers. All of a sudden, you realize you can't just go anywhere you want. Now, you could decide to go anywhere you want. You don't care whether the baby is hungry or not. You don't care whether the baby has made a poo or not. You just want to go and have fun. If anyone sees you outside having fun whilst your baby is crying and your baby hasn't been changed, what are they going to say? You don't value that child. Any meaningful relationship has terms and agreements that binds us to it. Now, some of the excuses we give, let me give three. One may say, yeah, I like the scriptures. I, it really does have very nice things. Jesus is really nice. But there are just certain things that I don't understand. Certain things, I don't like what it says. Now, if you have a God, if, let, let, let's put it this way. You say you don't like some of the things that the scripture says. Now, if you believe that the scriptures are the word of God, and you don't like some of the things that it says, that's a good thing. You know why it's a good thing? Let's assume the scripture's view of God. He knows everything. He was before everything. He's uh, almighty. He's all knowledgeable. He's all wise. And he's giving his view of the world and of you in these scriptures. And you come to certain places that you like. Fine. You then come to other places that you don't like. And you then say, I don't want to obey that. Well, the problem is that you can't then have a relationship with him. Because if you have a God that can never challenge you on anything, guess who is God? You. Because you're trying to determine what should be there and what shouldn't be there. Or you may say, I just don't understand. Now, first of all, I have to say this, and I don't mean this for everyone. If you say you just don't understand, I know there are certain difficult things in Scripture. But most of us that say that, we've not tried hard enough. We've actually assumed this kind of, you know, we go to university, we know that for us to, to, for, to be a medical doctor or to be a good lawyer, right, you go to the primary school, right? And after the primary school, you go to secondary school. After the secondary school, you go through the process of JAM, which will be three, four years. And after that, you then get into the university, study, 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 study. You finish. You work for two years. You say, I want to go and do a master's. Then you finish that one. Oh, I forgot. You have to do the, the um, law school. We do all of that knowing that to be a lawyer is not that simple. And then you carry this very big book, and you expect to open it up five minutes in a day and expect to really just fully understand. Of course, it's not going to work that way. So have we tried hard enough? Besides, in many of our relationships, people don't have to prove that this thing is true before we obey. I know some of us here, maybe uh, Francis um, uh, calls um, um, uh, Bola and says, Bola, uh, I have this friend, of, uh, this younger brother of mine that um, is very, very brilliant, he's very good, and I want him to work in your company. Well, quite often, and I'm sure some of us have done this, we actually take that person in, not because we know that person, but because we 
trust. So Bola would take that based on his trust in Francis, isn't it? He doesn't wait all the time to find out about this person, do a background check. You know, is he a pedophile? Is he a murderer? Is he... No, if Francis has recommended him on the basis of his trust in Francis, he may not fully understand the person he accepts. And so when we come and say, well, I'm not going to do this thing because I don't understand. Well, there are times that we have to do things because we trust the living God who has told us to do it, even when we don't understand, which was my second point. The third one is, you may say, I am a New Testament Christian, which is very related to the first one. I'm a New Testament Christian, so you pick and choose. Now, let me tell you about someone. His name is Marcion. Marcion was, he lived in the second century, not too long after the church uh, had just been formed. So the second century, um, just after the last apostle died. Now, he was a pretty big deal, Marcion, in the church at the time. Now, Marcion read the scriptures, and he didn't like what he saw. He basically saw two gods, right? The God of the Old Testament, full of wrath, and the God of the New Testament, who was full of love. Now, he had found certain things. He even said Paul was the chief apostle. I don't know where he got that one. But he had this wrathful Yahweh against the loving Jesus. So what Marcion did was basically to look at some of the scriptures. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I believe this. I believe this. And I believe this. So that he could come up with his own Bible. Now, this may seem ridiculous to some of us now. But I tell you this. It's on our campuses. This is now, this is the, probably the most influential, I don't want to call names, but most influential, one of the most influential leaders on, on campus that goes to minister in churches says this exact thing. In fact, recently I was listening and he said basically, if Jesus was alive, remember the encounter when Jesus' disciples wanted to call down fire from heaven and said, Lord, can we call down fire from heaven like Elijah did? And this man says, we've not really understood this thing because if we understand it well enough, you'll know that if Jesus was there with Elijah, Jesus would have rebuked Elijah. In other words, the God of love cannot have any wrath. In fact, says if you, when the Bible says that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay, that what God really meant, because Romans 12, 19, was that the wrath and his repaying was going to be a, uh, that you should give, if your enemy is hungry, give him food. If your enemy is thirsty, give him thirst. That that's the vengeance of God. Wow. Now, the way I think about this is this way. Now, Shagun, come. Shagun, may come. Let's do a bit of an interview, right? Okay. I've met your wife before, and I want to describe your wife to you. She's very beautiful. All right, so you, you, that's the first thing. I've met your wife. She's very beautiful. Her name is Biola, right? Every time I say, just answer, okay? So your wife's very beautiful. Her name is Biola. She's dark. Yes or no? How do you arrive at that? She's dark. I'm just <laughs> describing to you your wife that I met. No. She's dark? No. Okay. She drives a black G-Wagon. No. All right. She deals with um, uh, special needs uh, children. Yes. All right. Her parents live in Victoria Island. No. She's got three brothers. No. She has two children for you. Yes. She lives at Ibramadeso in Aja. Yes. Okay, good. So with this profile that I've just created... I've just spoken about. Is that your wife? Of course not. No. Um, yes or no? Is that your wife? No. 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 <laughs> but her name is Biola. Yes. She has two children for you. It's not dark. 
Wait, hold on. Her name is Biola. Yes. She has two children for you. Yes. She lives in Abramadi Yes. Yeah, so what's your problem? Because you don't have the complete profile. Sit down, thank you. What's the problem? The fact that you get some things right about God doesn't mean that you have the right God. And quite often, this is what we do, especially even with, unfortunately, even with our dreams and our visions. We have to have something that God himself has spoken in and has been tested through time and generation to know that this is who God is. It doesn't matter if you just say that I serve one God. Well, the demons believe that, and Muslims believe that. Does, does that mean that we already serve, we all serve the same God? And it doesn't also mean you can't start picking and choosing what parts you like in the Bible to say, well, the God that actually told the Israelites to go and slaughter everybody in that place, that cannot be God. But the God that actually forgives my sins, that is God. See, the Bible says that God created us in his image. When we do that, we are trying to create God in our own image. You will not have a meaningful relationship with God if you don't truly know who he is. But where are you going to get that? And Jesus is saying, you would only get that in the scriptures. It's only as you do that, that you can truly submit to the real God and not to yourself. In this relationship with God, look, it's not an equal partnership. It cannot be an equal partnership because he's creator and we're creatures. It's a loving relationship, but not an equal relationship. There's one who submits, there's one who worships, and there's one who blesses. But we can't really have this relationship with him if we, are, we don't have the scriptures and are not willing to obey. You cannot call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say and still think that you are, I'm Lord and you are not. One other thing that obedience does to us, I think, is that if we're obeying the scriptures, it frees us from the bondage of trying to be God and then frees us to worship the only true God, the very reason why we are made. If you want to go this route alone, believe me, it is filled with portals, hurdles, and eventually a place that no one else, none of us wants to find ourselves in. So do scriptures have supreme authority over your use of money, over your marriage, over your internet use, over your alcohol consumption, over your submission to church authority, over your manner of speech, over your life of service, over your vulnerability to community, over the use of your time. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do as I say? Now, someone would say, I do know that, but I do find it difficult. I find sometimes that I don't have the power to do what the Bible says. If you know the way this person reacted to me, I had no other choice than to call them names. I had no other choice than to explode. If you know the kind of pressure I was under, I had no other choice than to cheat. Well, the third thing is here that we will look at, the third point is scripture's power. Trying to obey without understanding the main message will run you out of gas. In other words, if you try to mediate this relationship with God simply by 
God said this, I must do it, and that's how I live my life, you'll find one thing, is that you can't actually obey all the commandments. Because again, it may be a misunderstanding of what the Bible is. The Bible is not a regulatory book, even though it has laws. The Bible is not a pragmatic book, even though it has proverbs. And the Bible is not a mystical book, even though it speaks a lot about the unseen world. So what's the Bible about? What's its main message? Because without its main message, you will not have the power to obey it, or you will not have this renewal of your mind that it actually requires. Go back to that passage in verse 35. Remember, in verse 35, it says, the scriptures cannot be set aside. For which we said that another way of looking at that is that the scriptures cannot be broken. Now, by saying this, Jesus is saying, this is the highest view you can have of the Bible. It cannot be broken. In other words, the Bible is without error. It's inerrant. So it doesn't need human beings to correct it. It's infallible. It's always true in its message that it's delivering. And it's reliable. It's always something we can depend on. So this unbreakable scripture, we can call, which is called the Word of God here, we can call the Word of God made text. The Word of God made text. It's text that we can read. And this text cannot be broken. But when we disobey, what is happening is we can't break it objectively. We are breaking it subjectively. God's word always stands, right? You will not cheat on your wife. You shouldn't do that. But I can break that by cheating on my wife. But that doesn't mean that the word has changed. It's not been broken. I have broken it subjectively, but it's not broken objectively. The purpose of God will always stand. Now, if the scriptures cannot be broken, and I'm called to obey it, but sometimes I break it, and the Bible actually says that doesn't bode well for me. There's only one consequence of that. Now, how do we get out of that mess? If we've broken the unbreakable scriptures, how do we get out of the misery that is promised us? Well, you find that because there is another word of God that can be broken and that was broken. No, not the word of God made text, but the word of God made flesh. You see, Jesus Christ, as we've seen throughout the book of the, uh, especially at the beginning of this, um, um, uh, of this book, we see that the word, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. But this word became flesh. Just as the scriptures reveal God, supremely, Jesus Christ reveals God. And in the greatest demonstration and act of love that the world has ever seen, the word was broken for us. Broken for us in what way? For every time we broke the word, because our ultimate destiny for breaking the word is that the word will break us eternally. And on the cross, Jesus went to take our own consequences. He was broken eternally for us, so that now we can live and worship God. In other words, what I'm saying is this, especially for those of us who are not Christians or are struggling with this. What the Bible offers us is first and foremost, it gives us this message that Jesus Christ is God's supreme revelation to mankind. But it's not just Jesus Christ as a person. With Jesus, 
is the Jesus who was crucified. The Jesus that says, yes, you cannot make all the rules. You will break some of the rules. And if you care for justice in this world, God must repay justice. But rather than you taking the consequences of breaking the rules, Jesus, the word, was broken for you. This is what we say during communion. The body, the body of Christ broken for you. How do we respond? It's very simple. David was a man that had a unique relationship with God, but he wasn't a man without errors. And there was a time he sinned very greatly. He slept with someone who was not his wife and got her husband killed in the war. And eventually God sent a prophet to him. And the prophet told him a parable and David was angered about that parable and said, the, the person that's done this wicked thing, I must judge him. And he said, you are the man. And in response to God, David wrote one of the most gut-wrenching psalms in Psalm 51. And he tells us, if you're not a Christian, there's a way you can respond to Jesus who was broken for you. Psalm 51, verse 17 says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. He was broken for you, and now he says, bring your broken heart to me and see whether I wouldn't mend it. He was broken for you and saying, do you feel the weight, weight of your sin? You don't have to carry it alone. I was broken for you. I don't know if any of you have seen this website before. It's called livingout.org. And it's really um, a couple of people in the UK who have same-sex attraction. And these are people who, despite this feeling in themselves, have said they want to live in the lifestyle that the scripture prescribes, and not the ones that is coming out in their own bodies. And for many of us, too, even when we are Christians, we find it very difficult. And we say, look, this is just who I am. This is how I feel. But these people have said, no, Jesus Christ was broken for me. And now I will break every desire that is contrary to his word. Can you do that? Will you decide not to leave your relationship with God simply based on how you feel, but based on the scriptures that he has revealed to us? I want you to ask yourself this question as you consider God's act of generosity through Jesus Christ. What really should I not obey in the scriptures? Even when I fully don't understand or I'm resistant, should I not trust a powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving God. The Unbreakable Scriptures paint the worldview of a loving and redemptive God and now commands us to live for Him, not ourselves. How would you respond? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. And we thank you for the scriptures that you've provided to us. Your unique way of speaking to us. We must confess, Lord, that it's not, not all our views and not all our beliefs 
are in alignment with it. And sometimes we actually don't even know which ones are. But we come today, Lord, with repentant hearts, asking that you not only forgive us, but grant us the grace to not just see through the scriptures, but to obey the scriptures. We ask for a renewed zeal in reading, a renewed zeal in trying to find out, and a renewed zeal to live our lives of worship. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.